0: I'm jazzed right now, so. Alright, perfect. Last,
1: last time we did this, I was like very uh honest. And then afterwards like uh No, that was that was Which trying... was great, it turns out, but I worried about it for a couple nights. Right, right. What did right. I say? I, what did yeah.
2: I think you both need to just trust yourselves? Yeah. You're you're saying the right thing, so I wouldn't worry about Be it. Yeah. Absolutely. This is Van Collar. Like we're at the West Coast! My name is Mo Amir, and today on This Is Van Color, I am joined by my very first returning guest. I had her on in September while she was running for city council for the city of Vancouver, a seat which she won because of course she won. She's amazing. A founding member of One City Vancouver, she blessed this podcast the last time she was here. She's working her tail off for you, Vancouver. She is Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle. But she has upped the ante for the sequel, and she's brought a very powerful friend. So powerful. He was listed on the Vancouver Magazine's Power 50 list. He is an elected councillor and the spokesperson for the Squamish Nation, one of the Lower Mainland's most influential Indigenous Communities, You've seen him front and center as a voice for Indigenous concerns regarding issues such as the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. He has also helped Simon Fraser University set up its Squamish Language Proficiency Certificate Program and advocates protecting and preserving Indigenous language. He volunteers with One City Vancouver as a resident of Vancouver. He is Holselam. Christine Hoselum, happy Super Blood Moon.
0: Thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I feel very uh, happy today and excited about the world and the future, and hopefully, um, doing some good in it.
2: Wonderful! Such optimism. I love it. Well, well, that's a bit hard to follow.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How how are you, Christine?
2: (laughs) I see writing all over your hands.
1: uh, Yeah, I'm juggling some things. Um, but but I'm doing really well too. Uh, I feel optimistic. Um, and. Uh, grateful to be getting to do the things I'm doing and happy to be here in this conversation.
2: And you both have been doing so much. So we're going to get into it. Um, I just do want to point out that both of you are uh, the first elected officials that I've had on the show. Ooh. I've had many candidates and candidates and uh, that became elected officials, but uh, the first official elected officials. <laughs> I'm really honored. Awesome. All right. Yeah, nice to be here. <laughs> uh, Christine, first of all, mm-hmm. uh, congratulations on your election victory. Thank you. Um, the passion and the authenticity that you brought to your campaign was really palpable. And after our first interview, I remember thinking like, oh, I really hope she wins. Um, not just for Vancouver's sake, but for my own selfish sake because I was like, I would love to have her back on the podcast as an elected official. Um, but I just have one question about the, the election itself. Uh, one of the more surprising results for me was the 9,000 votes that separated you and fellow city council candidate, Brandon Yan. Uh, perhaps more than any other duo mm-hmm. in the election, you you two always felt like a package deal for me. So what happened there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I can take a couple guesses, and Hal Salem wrote a um, a great piece about this, so I'll pass it to him as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, I deeply wish that Brandon had been elected. Brandon is amazing, um, and I hope we get a chance to elect him at some point in the future. Um, and it was. Uh, an incredible experience to get to run with him as Mm. a duo, which it felt like uh, for me in the campaign. Um, He brought a lot of wisdom and creativity and energy to the campaign. And um, so I'm grateful for that. Uh, And I don't know exactly. I mean, I have some sense of a a few things that happened in the campaign. I, you know, I didn't go into this campaign with some illusion that we're like a post-racist city. Um, I, I knew um, that there's still a lot of uh, subtle and less subtle racism in the city. Um, and still, I was surprised to the degree to which I heard it in mm-hmm. this campaign. So I think that that was part of it. Um, and, and Brandon just kept having to deal with in the campaign stuff that I wasn't getting tagged to deal with about this sort of faux controversy about his name and having his family-given traditional Chinese name mm-hmm. on the ballot. Um, there were these controversies created around him that were identity-based um, and that were um, unfair uh, yeah. and uh, and that I think both um, impacted him on the ballot unfairly but also just ate up a bunch of his
0: time and energy
1: during the campaign it was draining um he was working up until pretty close to the campaign because he's a young guy in vancouver trying to pay rent (laughs) like and and uh you know one of the many things that they don't tell you enough is that running for office is expensive in part because it's really Time-consuming, yeah. and unless you have a job that can give you a lot of loo time, um, it's tough. So I, I think all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, did you feel that
2: having the his Chinese name in, Ch- in Chinese characters ultimately hurt him in that way? Then, like, because when when he did that, I actually thought it was a smart move. I, you know, he asked the question if he could do it, mm-hmm. and he was able to do it, and and he had his personal reasons for doing it as well. Um, but do you think in retrospect maybe? on some yeah. of the subtle racism that, that we'd be talking about. Do you think that ultimately hurt him?
1: Um, I don't think that it was uh, a big advantage. Like people were sort of making scheming and conspiring yeah. that it would be based on the amount of anti-Chinese racism that I was hearing from people. It was mm-hmm. pretty clear to me that um, if to any extent that it was an advantage, there was going to be um, a disadvantage to it as well.
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the things that was like really interesting after the election was this conversation that we had and it's not just unique to Vancouver, it's unique to other cities in Canada mm-hmm. um, around the, the the makeup and the diversity of our councils and our elected bodies and things like that. And, you know, part of that can be hinted at the structure of our city council with the plurality at large voting system where you have 10 seats and you put, put up to 10 marks on a ballot um, and that can privilege a certain type of you have to um, winner-take-all. You have to campaign through the whole city. You right. have to get a high number of votes to win. Whereas in other cities, sometimes you'll see that when it's a more ward-based system or a uh, proportional system, um, there's other governance mechanisms that actually allow for you know um, non-white candidates to do well, mm-hmm. um, either because they're regional-based ridings that you're running in, and there's perhaps a lot of communities of color that, in that region, or the majority of that region, things like that. Right. Um, but it also goes back to you know the I would say systemic challenges that you face as potential candidates in a, in a major Canadian election like city council or others, um, which is the way that you know people of color have access to the type of training that leads to successful candidacies. Mm. So what type of networks are you able to build? What type of uh, donors are you able to attract? What type of uh, constituencies can you build through your name recognition? Um, what type of income do you, are you able to access? Um, all of these things start to play into the way in which you can become perhaps a successful candidate, um, and then part of that is also on parties. Like what kinds of candidates are the parties putting forward and building up, and 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 putting as a part of their their team. Sure. And so you know, One City does a really good job at that. It's it's a lot of uh, women who are involved in the organizing of One City, the candidates that it puts forward, um, things like that. But. I think with Brandon, yeah, there's, a, there's a, some inherent, inherent challenges mm-hmm. um, and I think that we can do better next time and I think it really comes down to like really building that out, not just within a political party, but within our society. Sure. Um, you know, and you see the type of racism that comes forward or you see the type of misogyny that comes forward or the type of identity, ba- kind of identity-based uh, attacks that come forward that aren't really policy-based. Um, they're not really about the discussion of our city. But it really it makes people question, it makes women question, it makes young people question, it makes people of color question of whether they should even run. Absolutely, uh, yeah. What, what type of um, what kind of thing am I putting myself through? Yeah. Is, it, is it worth it? Um, and I think that that's part of the the conversations that we're having and thinking about, and and hopefully uh, training people and building up people mm-hmm. for. Them.
2: Now, now, one city is obviously very big on this idea of diversity and inclusion, and you know those those two ideas or those two concepts have become so ubiquitous in our culture in a lot of ways that uh, you see a lot of political interests and corporate interests adopting them, um, at least in name, at least nominally. Mm -hmm. Um, And and in spite of everyone saying that this is very important, as you have both pointed out, you know, there is still a lot of work that needs to be done or a lot of restructuring in terms of uh, at least our politics in terms of achieving the type of diversity and and inclusivity that we want um but but i want to hear it from from both of you uh you know when one city vancouver or when you talk about uh diversity and inclusivity what do you mean exactly
1: um well i can say a bit about add to a bit about that for one city sure. um one of the things that has been really intentional for us as a political party is to be doing politics differently as i got to say a lot about when we last yeah. uh, chatted during the campaign. Um, and one piece of that um, is uh, how how diverse the organization is kind of all the way along the spectrum. So sometimes political parties mm-hmm. um, last minute try to pull together a sort of diverse slate of candidates that look great on their postcard, um, and it's not... Um, They're not being well supported all the way back through and down the organization and they're not um, being reflected in the in the depth of the organization. So. Mm -hmm. so And they also seem to come out of
2: nowhere. Yeah. yeah, And they haven't been
1: supported and trained up in in preparation so um, that they can be successful in in running Mm -hmm. and not just be a good um, candidate on the picture. Uh, Right. So. It means a lot to me um, that one city has been so women led all the way through our back room um, mm-hmm. and uh, and a lot of women of color, a lot of people of color through the organization who are shaping it um, all the way back.
0: Yeah, and I would say that uh, you know it's 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 a evolving conversation and we've moved the needle in some ways and we're also still perhaps not where we need to be yet and when it comes to diversity. Because sometimes the diversity question is like, are we just having a conversation around diversity for diversity's sake? state? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and then there's other aspects of it too, which I think are from a progressive lens that are really important and it comes up and I think it's something that I've, I've articulated is that when we talk about diversity and uh, add in an intersectional lens on that, You know, there's things around diversity, which is like, okay, the face of our organization might have some people of color in it, Mm -hmm. but does our executive, does our leadership, does our board, does our staff, do our volunteers, um, who are we largely communicating to? Like, I've been critical as somebody who's been involved in the climate justice movement that often the climate justice movement has... a They've figured out how to talk to white people, Yeah, but how good is it at talking to other communities of color, Mm -hmm. whether it's in in different languages or just around the way that the, the conversation is framed. Yeah. And so there is an importance as well when we talk about diversity that, okay, is it diversity for diversity's sake? And then are we applying an intersectional lens, which to me also means, you know, are we thinking about class? Are we thinking about race? Are we thinking about sex? Uh, and gender and things like that, mm-hmm. and you know when we put forward policies, are these policies that are just going to help? Because it, there's the the issue around the marginalization of communities, but there's also you know working class people from marginalized communities that our policies can address. You know the the challenges that they face. Sure. And so there's there's all those kinds of aspects to it, and they all play a role in in the way that like in the last federal election um you know when we see or the provincial election when we see people like melanie mark getting elected or appointed as minister jodie wilson raybould being appointed as minister mm-hmm. and things like that i know i know for a fact that uh, the appointment of these people into these positions of power has an impact on the young girls who are seeing these women of leadership in these power, I know it has an impact on them to see themselves reflected in these halls of power. And so there's an impact on the symbolism aspect of it. I think it's just important for me and for a lot of people in one city that it's not just the symbolism, which is important, it's actually all the way through. And it's also in the policies that we put forward that it's not just about having the right people, it's about having the right um, ideas that are really gonna help the people that need Uh, leadership that's going to stand up for them.
2: Yeah.
1: I I was just going to add, I I remember hearing um, Van Jones give a talk uh, and he was saying, you know, if you're forming a team, you don't want everyone on your team to have the same strengths Yeah. because then your team's only good at a couple things. You want your team to be made up of people who think differently and approach issues differently and bring different perspectives. And Mm -hmm. so I I also think it's critical that it just – makes the outcomes better for everyone to have a diversity of voices at the table and it's um, one of my roles at council is chairing the nominations committee so um, there's a whole slew of city committees um, of different forms and functions that advise staff and council on a bunch of issues Um, and uh, particularly with such a white council but in any situation I think um, it's uh, it's critical that we have more diversity, uh, m- more class diversity, more racial diversity, mm-hmm. more diversity in terms of uh, gender non-variant folks um, and uh, and beyond, um, because it makes the ideas better, it makes the discussion better, and it builds a better city for all of us that live here.
2: Sure, yeah. I want to get into that, um, because both of you co-wrote a piece in the Tai. Um, talking about diverse uh, city advisory committees. Mm-hmm. Um, for the casual listener or observer, can you explain exactly what policy councils are, or advisory committees are, uh, why they're important, and then obviously, Christine, your commitment to to bring in more diverse voices to uh, counterbalance perhaps the lack of diversity on, on council? Yeah, so um,
1: I'm not going to get too nerdy about the different types of <laughs> committees but there are a few different categories of committees at the city um, mm-hmm. the the key one in terms of outreach and engagement i think is um, what have been called our citizen advisory committees um, and what i hope we will start calling our resident advisory committees because okay. they have nothing to do with citizenship sure. um uh and so they have existed on a number of different issues, and they've done some incredible work across the city. Um, the, Vancouver is right now in the first phase of building an accessible city strategy, and there was an incredible amount of work um, done by the people with disabilities committee uh, and the seniors committee, and more um, mm-hmm. in uh, in pushing that forward. I mean, in particular, uh, a couple key leaders in the city, uh, volunteers on those committees who um, have done a, an amazing amount of legwork to get that done. So um, uh, the, the city had a food policy council as one of those committees. Mm. There was a LGBTQ com- uh, committee, um, uh, so an these indigenous people- advisor. So there were there were a whole bunch. They'd sort of been created yeah. on the fly as the city, um, as the past council over a decade or so realized blind spots and created mm. committees to bring more voices in. Um, mm-hmm. And before this election, they all got kind of disbanded so that the new council could look at how to bring them back. and And staff have done a review and interviewed all the folks on those past committees. And oh, gotcha. so we're okay. um, in the process of reshaping them mm-hmm. to make sure that they're that they're. They make the most sense in terms of the formation and, ha- and how we really honor people's time. There's a ton of passion and volunteer time that has gone into those committees. And we, we want to make sure that um, we're listening to them in the best way and, and uh, making them heard. And, uh,
2: so are these basically people that are on the ground uh, looking at a certain area, a certain policy area, maybe coming back with feedback from the community? Like, How, how does it work?
0: a lot of the time it's it's for staff actually less okay. less so I mean eventually information is shared with council but it's a lot mm-hmm. of opportunity for staff to like, they're developing something on a particular area yeah. um, or they're focusing on a strategy that the city is developing on citywide or a specific neighborhood or things like that. Mm-hmm. And there's actually, it, it's a place for staff to go and present information and get feedback on a particular oh, thing. Okay. So if if a, if a plan was being developed for a new neighborhood or a community plan was being developed mm-hmm. or a specific strategy around, say, a, a climate change was being developed, you have things like the renters advisory committee, you have the indigenous mm-hmm. advisory committee, you have the planning commission, <coughs> you have all of the 23 or t- over twenty. Yeah. money um, and there's a whole slew mm-hmm. of different topics. So it gives staff some sounding boards to go to and say, we're thinking about doing this and get that feedback and then theoretically incorporate that feedback before a report comes to council. Right, um, And it's a place for um, members of the community to to get involved, to learn about the city, learn about their government um, mm-hmm. and actually be able to give feedback um, on what's being developed. Because there's a lot of, I mean, that's the thing, there's a lot of good faith work being done by people in government mm-hmm. there's obviously challenges with government that everybody always like we're always aware of um, and know that are continuously there mm-hmm. but you know a lot of the time I think we just have to remind people that decisions are made by those who show up and we need people to step up yeah. and it's not always going to be on council it's not always going to be on the um, these resident advisory committees sure. sometimes it's just showing up for the public hearings. Right. When there's a rezoning happening in your community for social housing or for attainable housing, affordable housing, or for rental and things like that, it's it's taking that time, if you can, um, to go show up and add your comments to it if you support it. Because decisions are made by those who show up. And sometimes the people who show up are advocating for something that has, isn't in the best interest of those who need it, mm-hmm. um, the most vulnerable, um, or, or the most marginalized.
1: Yeah. I mean, often who's showing up is who the current system is working for. Of course, so, yeah. Um, I do think it takes some commitment and some extra effort to make sure we're hearing from um, folks whom the current system isn't hearing from sure. yet.
2: Um, I just want to step back for, for one second. Um, so when we are talking about these committees, mm-hmm. so they're not staff, right? And they're not obviously counselors it's It's people in the community that are that are chosen to sit on the committees. and yeah, so okay.
1: the, so they they'll get posted. um there's <coughs> sorry That's okay. uh, there's a um, uh committees that we're filling um and seeking applicants for right now on the city website. Um, mm. m- uh, more sort of expertise on specific things. the the resident advisory committees. Will come up in the next couple months, um, and then people apply. There's an application. Okay, gotcha. The nominations committee, yeah, um, uh, sifts through those and and forms the committee. So they're mm-hmm. valute- they're residents and, and volunteers, they're volunteers, um, yeah, and they're basically bring, reporting to
2: staff. Yeah, and yeah. they
1: bring um some additional perspective that that staff think is valuable. The council thinks is valuable. Okay. Um, and that help us to better be hearing from the community um, and making good policy decisions. Mm
0: -hmm. And some of them will have liaisons appointed by council, Mm -hmm. parks board and school board that attend as well. Okay. And so sometimes, um, for example, I was on the planning commission, which is actually the oldest advisory committee in Uh, Vancouver history. um, And it's uh, currently the only committee that actually has budget allocated to it to hire staff. Hmm. Uh, And I was on the planning commission for a year. and we had a council member who would attend. We had a parks board rep, and then um, after you know, I remember um, the previous liberal government actually fired the, par- the school board, uh, so there was a time period where there wasn't anybody right. from the school board. Once that got the election happened and people were reappointed, um, then we had a rep coming from the school board. So you actually right. had representatives, and they were able to do reports. So if we had the city council that coming into the planning commission meeting, they would give updates on some of the things that were related to planning at, gotcha. at city hall. Um, and things like that.
2: Yeah, so so now I want to get more into this idea of of meaningful consultation and and talking with communities and and getting them involved in Mm -hmm. in policy as well. Uh, Whole Salem, uh, you've talked quite a lot about um, meaningful consultation with indigenous communities. Uh, Now, one city does have uh, this idea to repatriate land, uh, to build housing for the people of Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. Uh, As, of course, as we know, Indigenous communities have been disproportionately impacted by the housing crisis and historically underrepresented in the political process. So when when we are talking about the idea of meaningful consultations with these communities, what is the specific work that has to be done here to achieve genuine Indigenous justice?
0: Yeah, the housing is the number one issue for a lot of our communities. It is for the Squamish nation, Mm -hmm. continues to be has been for a long time. And there's something like really absurd to me. And I think to a lot of people around the idea of like Coast Salish people from this territory being homeless. Mm. There's something absurd about that to me, Mm -hmm. like homeless in your own homeland. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's really challenging and there is a lot of work happening on that. We just recently, uh, um, opened, um. A modular home on some of the MST lands okay, uh, um, nice. at Fairmont, um, and and there's a lot of work happening around housing a lot of our Indigenous people that are homeless because we're you know huge percentage of the homeless population. Mm-hmm. The the work of justice, especially from a city perspective, uh, really involves a couple of things. One, it requires a mindset change within the halls of government. It it goes like city council members. A lot of people think that. Once you get people elected, they can just change government and change the way <laughs> things are done. And and it, it's it's so, when you hit the ground running and you have a, a bureaucracy of staff who have been around for a long time, who have done things a certain way, come from a certain mindset of how things are done. Um, you can't just tell people that, you can't force people to change their mindset about things. Right. And this has happened in the federal government, the provincial government and city halls as well. And so that's a huge part of it, that people have to really understand what this might mean as a part of their work, what's the broader principles that we're applying. And the city, to to its credit, and I do acknowledge it, the city of Vancouver has, compared to other municipalities, um, done that work and they're doing that work and they're becoming aware. There's way more work that needs to be done, Mm -hmm. but that mindset is at least there for the conversation to happen. Um, The next part of it, I think, is that there has to be an awareness, um, a lens that is applied to all the work that is happening. Mm -hmm. That when we're talking about things like city plans, when we're talking about things like community plans, when we're talking about parks uh, and and funding and and things like that, there has to be a lens. um, And hopefully it's happening without us having to ask for it to say, you need to take into consideration what this means for the three nations here. Right. You have to take into consideration what this means for Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, for example, some of the work that's happening around the citywide plan stuff that this council is really interested in moving forward and will be in the staff report will be coming back is, you know, there's talks about like, oh, we need to start at zero. We need to start at like a a blank slate Mm -hmm. when we talk about city plan, like creating a city plan. Um, and not acknowledge like any of the current structures that are in place. And then think about what it means to build a a city plan for Vancouver that's been built on occupied indigenous territory, that that for all of the years that Vancouver has been around, there's a history of displacement and dispossession. Like even the fact that when we talk about land and ownership and property, that it was illegal for indigenous people to own property up until 1951. So for 50 to 60 years of Vancouver's history, it was not legal for Indigenous people to even buy property here, even if they had the income to do it. Sure. And so when we talk about speculation and the challenges around that, it's like, there is a particular class of people that were able to benefit from laws that were race-based yeah. um, and it targeted Indigenous people specifically, as well as others. Mm-hmm. And so when we're thinking about, we're going to move in a new direction, are we just going to move in a new direction that doesn't take into account the problems that we've created into the past and how we're gonna wrap that into fixing them as a part of this new trajectory we're going in. So uh, uh, on the housing front, the City of Vancouver has done a lot of amazing work around offering city land, um, not permanently, not selling it, but offering city land to nonprofit housing developers to build social housing in the City of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a decade where there was none because of all the, the direction of federal, provincial, and municipal governments. There was no social housing being built for a decade uh, or any kind of affordable housing, um, nonprofit housing. And so the City of Vancouver has started to offer up land. Um, two nonprofit housing developers and organizations to be able to build the housing. How land. long
2: has the city been offering this?
0: For? <clears throat> a lot of it's new. A lot of it it's is okay. the, a lot of it is in the last, um, f- you know, three to five years um, okay. with the Vancouver Housing Authority. Sure. Um, there's been some rec- like some work that was done a few months ago, earlier in the summer, around how they're going to be able to offer that up to the, um, different groups, community land trusts, mm-hmm. uh, and there's more work happening now. We have partners coming in from the provincial and federal government. Uh, the provincial government, for example, is putting up money, um, you know, billions of dollars towards uh, nonprofit housing, including for indigenous people, the federal government as well through CMHC. So we're seeing a change now. Sure. And now I think that there's an opportunity for the city when the time is right to to begin that conversation with the three nations around – We've the city has already acknowledged the land belongs – like this is Squamish – or Musqueam, Squamish, enslaved land. We've mm-hmm. acknowledged that. Um, that's not an argument we're having anymore. It was an argument for a long time with city governments and with municipal and pr- provincial governments. Sure. Yeah. And so now we can talk about if the city is going to be giving up land for social, like for nonprofit housing, here's an opportunity to have practicing real reconciliation by saying we're going to give land back to the community so they can build housing for their members on it. Mm-hmm. And that'd be huge. It'd be yeah. huge to bring our people back home.
2: And, and do you think the the inroads for that dialogue? are, are strong now? Like, I mean, as a, as someone who is a counselor for the Squamish nation, when you're dealing with, when you're talking with municipalities and, and um, engaging in these conversations, obviously you said now, at least they, you know, there's that acknowledgement, yep. but beyond that, you know, are we pointed in the right direction?
0: Well, I'll give you an example of something that it's like my favorite story of last year. Sure. And it's the fact that it was so underreported that actually makes me happy about it, was when the city of Vancouver, and they had a ceremony last, uh, I think it was in the summertime, mm-hmm. where the city of Vancouver repatriated the sisnam lands that the Musqueam people had fought for against the private developer because they found, you know, it was ancestral lands where there was burial remains found on it. Okay. And there was protests okay. and there was a lot of solidarity that happened by the city, you know, councillors at the time um, as well uh, from different parties. Um, and so the city of Vancouver, eventually got to the point of working the relationship with Musqueam where they actually gave the land back mm-hmm. to Musqueam and they had a ceremony, they acknowledged the city and, and, and the community of Musqueam. And I wasn't involved, in this, it was a different community, Yeah. but, and there was a f- couple of news stories about it, but it was a blip. There was very little coverage about it. There was very little controversy about it. Nobody was upset about the idea of the city government giving land for, for nothing, almost, yeah. like just giving it back. Yeah. Um, and I think that the fact that it was so underreported and so, so, um, a little event that happened shows that the conversation has moved so far on that because there was a there would be a time where that kind of action would be con- controversial. yeah, right. where where people are upset and it's an angry thing to get angry about, and it's not anymore. Um, and Vancouver's not the only place that's moving in that direction. I know Victoria was doing that as well, and there's a few other municipalities. Uh, provincial and federal governments are moving that direction. And land mm-hmm. is the number one thing, like land and language for me sure. um, when it comes to reconciliation, because the whole enterprise of colonization and residential schools has to do with land and, and identity and culture and language and things like that. So mm-hmm. what I, I guess my point is that there, there's already um, the relationship there. There's already the will there. There's already the interest there. Um, it's just about figuring out the ideas and then agreeing on them and then implementing them. Sure. And and, yeah. it, and it, the, the goodwill is there. I think it's it's exciting, and and the city can continue to be a leader and in uh, reconciliation and in Indigenous justice.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean that that's great to hear. Uh, it's it's one of those issues that I think for a lot of people, um, you know, they're on board, mm-hmm. <laughs> but a lot of people just aren't engaged in politics and don't know what's happening. And mm-hmm. it's it's good to hear that you know you obviously being on the ground that that it is headed in the right direction. And, and you're right. I think it, things like that are a lot less controversial now. Um, Christine, I have to say, I feel like on council, you're making good on all your promises, the, at least the ones that you made on on this show. That's the plan. <laughs> um, obviously, as we've discussed, the biggest issue in the last election was housing. Um, last time you were here, you very eloquently explained this idea of a land value tax or land value capture. Um, and, but I want, I'm want i curious about City Hall right now mm-hmm. um, because one of the first motions was almost opposite to what you were advocating for. It was the repealing of, of duplex zoning, uh, which at least <coughs> from my perspective like was a very small step uh, in terms of zoning reform, uh, at least the type of zoning mm-hmm. reform that one city has advocated for. It was repealed, that that motion, Uh, and then you had your motion as well for a study on a land value Mm -hmm. uh, capture. Um, So I'm just curious about what the dynamics are right now in city council. Like, Are you facing an uphill battle or do you think maybe there is somewhat of a consensus about equitable rezoning, equitable densification, creating public wealth from land? you know creating more social and non-market housing opportunities and protecting renters
1: yeah i could answer that in so many ways <laughs> mo um i mean the first thing i want to say um that i think is true uh, is that there's a lot of commitment at this council at this point to work well together to That's communicate good. respectfully um there are big political differences around that table um, mm-hmm. and also so far um, it's been respectful uh, and and cooperative um, even when we disagree um, mm-hmm. uh, and those disagreements can't be understated um, but I do think we have already had moments where we've realized that um, when we cooperate to the extent that we can we do better than if we're fighting Uh, against one another on things Um, and and, um, I'm sure we'll get to it but the climate motion that I um, was able to bring forward this week I think was an example there were amendments people wanted to make there were things um, and and I could happily vote for all of those amendments because it allowed people to see themselves Mm -hmm. um, in that work and that is necessary in actually getting that work done. Um, so similarly on, on the land value tax, I think there were ways, the one city has been talking about land value capture the whole time that, um, people can see themselves in because, uh, it's sensible, um, it's responsible, uh, it's just, um, and so we've been, uh, we've been talking about it that way. Um, and it's, uh, Moved the conversation along, so I'm I'm really glad to see that at council. Um, I do think when the rubber hits the road on on some of these conversations, we're gonna get into sticky territory, and it's gonna be harder. So I'm glad we're building some respectful relationships because, mm-hmm. um, you know, for instance, uh, when we were putting forward the city plan motion, um, which is an exciting project, um, that I think lots of good things could come from. Mm-hmm. One of my concerns about it, um, and and I put forward, <coughs> you know, people don't pay attention to amendments, that's uh, understandable. I, I tried to <laughs> shape in the language of the city plan um, that we prioritize uh, housing for vulnerable and um, housing uh, unstable populations in every neighborhood of the city mm-hmm. as a kind of basis of of what the city plan would take us to, um, and that did not pass. Um, that was considered too prescriptive Really, uh, going into the plan that a number of people, um, most people around the table seemed to feel that that, um, wasn't giving enough opportunity to hear from neighborhoods about what they wanted in their neighborhood. And I felt like, no, that's a, you know, that was intentionally prescriptive. Um, uh, that we should be prioritizing that ho- housing, which is, was a big part of One City's platform and a, hmm. and a big commitment um, uh, of mine and, and the folks that I know and organize with. So um, there are things we disagree about. Right now, we're disagreeing nicely with each other, and I think <laughs> we're getting some good work done, um, but it's uh, it's not going to be yeah. easy.
2: Um, you, uh, just as a side note, you led... Uh, you led them in a prayer or some sort of... Uh, I saw you guys holding hands. I
1: didn't lead it. You didn't lead it? No, okay. I'm so cautious about no. that sort of thing. Okay, sorry, yeah, no, I didn't mean I to mean, put no, that out there. No, you don't, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, but I, I I mean, I had a couple people in the campaign say to me like, oh, you're a minister and I believe in the separation of church and state, <laughs> so I'd never vote for you. And I was like, well, I also believe in the separation of church and state, so just for the record. Good
2: point, um, yeah.
1: But uh, yeah, the, um, the mayor uh mayor stewart brought forward a uh and has moved very quickly on a opioid task force and some pretty quick start recommendations out Mm -hmm. of that um that's a uh issue that he you know that all of us are passionate about and that i think he's shown some really strong leadership on Mm -hmm. um and it passed with uh many, many amendments. Yeah. Um, which is the theme of this council so far. <laughs> I think honestly we had like A to X of the alphabet in amendments. Yeah. Long couple days, but really worth it because it's an issue that matters. Sure. Um and then Pete Fry, uh Councillor Fry at the end suggested we all stand in this a circle and it was a kind of moving way to end. What yeah, was a really no, meaningful it was- um, uh, it was a powerful image yeah. yeah yeah
2: and and uh, I apologize I think I just assumed that no. maybe you had stepped to there but that's very good reasoning for for why you wouldn't but uh no yeah, it was but powerful and, and, and good
1: on good on Pete for leading that I think absolutely um, and yeah it was uh important work
2: yeah I, I want to get into this idea of uh again back into housing and some zoning stuff and this land value tax for us like I said, last time you so eloquently explained what it was. Can you give us again like a 30-second rundown for someone who doesn't yes. know what it is? Yeah.
1: So the idea of a land value uh, capture, a land value tax, um, is that we can measure the lift in the value of any piece of land mm-hmm. um, at any time. Often that lift is created by public investments like infrastructure projects, um, a subway or a new bus route or parks, Um, Or it's created by a change in zoning and land use, Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, some of what might come out of the city plan. So a lot of that lift in the value of the land is created publicly through investments and through decisions of our elected, publicly elected leaders. Mm -hmm. And the idea of a land value tax is that a portion of that publicly created wealth goes back to the public for public priorities, like Mm -hmm. more robust transit and like uh, truly affordable housing in every neighborhood.
2: Sure, and uh, I think as you mentioned the first time, but we'll mention Mm -hmm. it again, this doesn't include um, increasing the value of the building if you did renovations to it or anything like that.
1: Yeah, exactly, it's strictly on land value because that's the increase that is primarily impacted by public and government decisions. If you wanna reno your kitchen, and it increases the value of your home or condo. Great, that's not—that's you. You did yeah. that work.
2: Yeah, there's actual materials and uh, labor put yeah. into that. Yeah,
0: and, and there's also a par- part of this too that's really important um, from a development perspective and a city perspective is that when you have land that's vacant, mm-hmm. when you have land that's sitting downtown and a developer is has, has basically bought it and they're sitting on it and they're going to wait out. You know, they're going to drive up the value of the land's going to go up because of the market, but also because of other amenities that are being created in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, that one of the tools that a city governments have and provincial governments have is to drive uh, industry or drive the ca- uh, market to do something is to put taxes on it when you want it to either do something or not do something. Yeah, exactly. So if you want these lands to be used, you want them to build build housing on it. We're mm-hmm. in a housing crisis. Um, you can do those kinds of things to change the type of um, action that uh, the markets and, and, and that might happen. And, and it's very true, like, you know, with the Squamish Nation, we're doing a lot of development and we're looking at a lot of development with lands that we've been able to reacquire. And mm-hmm. I know I know from the conversations that we talk about, there's a school right across the street, there's a park across the street, there's transit right down the corner. Yeah. We know that when these these things are in the minds of developers when they're contemplating the development of, a, of some sort of housing project. Oh, of course. And... And they know, and we know that it's going to drive up the cost, like the value of the land. Mm-hmm. And so, what we've seen through this housing crisis is rampant speculation, the massive uh, amount of wealth that's been created from from just land values rising and rising and rising and rising quite drastically. Yeah. And we hear the stories about it, and I, we have family, you know, who lucked out five years ago, bought a bought a townhouse, and have made, you know, a. M- all, more than what they've actually put into it in their payments. Um, People who bought houses back in the early 90s and are walking away millionaires today Mm -hmm. because the the market just kind of exploded. And so when things like that happen, um, which impacts all of us, which drives up the cost of housing, drives up the cost of living, makes their cities unaffordable, Um, One tool that city governments can be doing is to tax the land value, Mm -hmm. to recoup that huge, massive influx of, of value that's been created in our communities, to be able to tax a portion of it. And b- give it back to our, the community, mm-hmm. give it back to the people who actually live here and want to be here, and especially to the people who are the most vulnerable. So if the city of Vancouver could do a land value tax, they'd be able to pay for more social housing and nonprofit housing. They'd be able to pay for more transit services mm-hmm. or perhaps more affordable transit services. Um, and so it's really about capturing that value that's being created artificially right. um, and turning it back and giving it back to the community. Uh, and it's really important that we do this and find tools because, you know, we, we need more social housing, we need more nonprofit housing, uh, and and governments need tools to be able to capture the wealth to be able to pay for those things.
2: Yeah. So getting to this idea of a land uh, value tax, because it is, I've seen a lot of back and forth, particularly between you and Patrick Condon, uh, a lot of nuances there, and I don't want to get into the, the thick of it. Um, but it, from my understanding, One City, Vancouver's notion of a land value tax is obviously linked directly to rezoning or (coughs) upzoning. And I think one concern that a lot of people have is that when you're zoning for greater densification, um, you know, are you creating greater gentrification? Um, And this is obviously a a concern that some members on council might have, Mm -hmm. but this is Mm -hmm. uh, a concern that observers from the outside might have. When we are talking about a land value tax, when we are talking about upzoning or rezoning, you know what protections are you advocating for against gentrification or crowding out existing residents for perhaps quote unquote you know richer ones?
1: Yeah, uh, I would answer that in a couple of ways. I think um, uh, that we need to be doing everything we can around um, tenant protection uh, and preventing. Displacement uh, of renters um, who are being heavily impacted in this housing crisis, um, mm-hmm. and the, you know, and the instability of rental housing, particularly for low-income and vulnerable people, mm-hmm. it has health impacts. It has all kinds of societal and cultural impacts, and um, so that uh, tenant protection piece um, is key. And the City of Vancouver has some work to do in strengthening our uh, tenant protection policies um and then I already forgot uh the second piece that oh uh, and and one of the other pieces that I think is key on this um is that we uh it's an imperfect lens but I think about that we need to be shifting everything to more affordability um Mm -hmm. rather than in the opposite direction uh and and that's one frame I look at uh, when looking at how we zone and what projects we approve. So, um, if we're moving an existing single-family home to become, um, you know, a fourplex, for example, or or a row of townhomes, mm-hmm. um, those townhomes aren't going to be affordable to everyone, um, but they're significantly more affordable than the single-family home that was there. Right. Um, so we're moving that in the right direction. Um, if we're tearing down existing affordable rental to build more expensive rental, um, we're not moving in the right direction on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's been a tricky one uh, because we need more purpose-built rental. Um and right now, uh, such a small amount of the land in Vancouver is zoned for rental that most of our new rental stock is getting built in the place of old rental stock. Um, and oh, so okay. what we need to be doing is zoning, making it legal to build rental in more parts of the city so that new rental stock isn't competing with old rental stock, it's expanding the number of units that we have all over. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go back to those pieces, tenant, strong tenant protection, um, and shifting in terms of zoning, uh, shifting toward more aff- affordability along the spectrum in every project that right. we're building at this point.
0: And, and one of the things that I found really fascinating, like to, to, impo- to think about the housing crisis. So I remember when, I uh, say a number of years ago, it was really starting to be talked about. Mm -hmm. And it was being talked about for for young people, being talked about for seniors. Uh, And then the affordability crisis around housing just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And you could see that the conversation was impacting more and more people. And so there was more and more conversations happening and more and more attention paid to it. Um, The the thing that I've learned about the housing crisis and this issue is that we call it a housing crisis. And we think of it as just this kind of one conglomerate, one kind of monolithic problem. Mm -hmm. But the reality is is that when you drill down into it, because you're talking about markets and income and uh, land use and all of these types of things, that it's important to think about that the, the housing crisis is impacting different parts of our community differently.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And
0: so when we talk about homelessness, the, the solution to homelessness is not gonna be the solution to people who are middle income. Mm-hmm. And the solution to people who are a little bit below average income is not gonna be the same as it is for people who are middle income. Mm-hmm. And so the thing is that the, the crisis has gotten so bad that it actually has impacted everybody from the very um, one end of the spectrum, which is uh, like extreme poverty mm-hmm. um, with homelessness, uh, all the way through to what I would say is the average income earner and above. Yeah. Because we can see that even average income earners in Vancouver aren't able to afford a lot of the types of housing that are here. So it's yeah. impacting that spectrum. What that means is that when we propose solutions, and this is the challenge around the nuance of this conversation in our city, is that if you propose solutions that are going to help this segment, you often get people from the other segments or the advocates <laughs> of those segment saying that's not the right choice to make. Yeah. That's not the right direction to make because you're not talking about you know, the people I care about. Sure. And so it's, it's challenging when we have these kind of um, winner-take-all debates when, when there's lots of segments that are trying to deal with this, but it really goes back to, in terms of the tenant protections, we're seeing action from the province on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're seeing some changes at the city hall around what can be done to support tenants. So things like, you know, Christine's talking about, and we're seeing this a lot in the West end, um, older, uh, rental that tends to be at a lower market because it's year it was built and 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 tenant long-term tenants so the rents are a little bit not at the average um what there are in the market now Mm -hmm. being retrofitted or renovated or torn down and replaced with other rental but the new rental is coming in at market value not at the value that it was at currently Mm -hmm. and so when we have situations like that it's like what types of tenant protections what types of rights and guarantees are we legally forcing on developers to have to provide for tenants in these situations in terms mm. of right of return, in terms of the support they're given, the notice they're given, the compensation they're given, all of those types of things. And it's not just in those those rental situations, it's also for the people in the basement suites. Yeah. And and the problem about, you know, dealing with needing to create more rental period is that or say duplexes or, you know, quadruplexes or fourplexes or any of that kind of stuff. When we talk about upzoning, if we're so afraid to upzone or to to, to to create more housing options because we're worried about you know the ter- the people who might be displaced from the basement suites or things like that, there's also the fact that people are already being displaced from their single detached you know home that's in, they're living in the basement suite because somebody's buying the property, tearing it down, and replacing it with another right, single detached yeah. home, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, which
1: is the majority of new home starts yeah. in the cities.
0: and and so the issue is like mm-hmm. it's not actually one or the other. We know that people are going to be displaced, even if if nothing changed around creating more rental or, or whatever, or upzoning, creating more types of density. Mm-hmm. We know that even at the current levels, people are going to be displaced, and all we're going to get out of it is the same type of uh, home that is currently available which is inaccessible to the vast majority of people in Vancouver. Yeah. And so there is And a, it's even more expensive than the one that it's Yeah. Worth, and, and, it. and, and, and so <laughs> not
1: moving in the yeah. right direction.
0: Yeah. And I'm inspired and there's lots of legal differences around it but I'm inspired by some of the stuff that's happening around North America like in Seattle and Minneapolis around you know this conversation around density and around the impacts on the market and helping people. So sure. you know in Seattle there's a massive it was one of the top 3 housing booms for rental and in North America yeah. and, and in the U.S., um, where they're starting to see the average rent starting to c- decline, okay. uh, or start to, they, you know balance out, and now they're actually starting to come down. And the, the scenario, and the thing is, and this is what blows my mind: Vancouver has a l- um, below one percent vacancy rate. Right, it's gone down to yeah. 0.9, 0.8. It's starting to creep back up a little bit. And I think that's a result of the empty home taxes, speculation taxes, as well as the influx of, of non-profit housing coming on the market sure. and rental um, purpose-built rental policies. But Seattle has a a five percent, 5.2 or five percent vacancy rate. Oh wow, okay. We have a one. Yeah. And th- there's a point where, depending on the type of you know um, housing market you're looking at. Getting to the point where where landlords are offering one month's free, they're offering gift cards, um, they're they're <laughs> they they're, they're giving away prizes to people who show up for viewings. Oh wow! Because, Interesting. And so I would love. Sounds
1: for, nice, right, right. Yeah. I, I would
0: I would love for a renter to have the freedom mm-hmm. to be able to have landlords bidding. Yeah. for their lease that you could go to five or six landlords and they're they're all competing for your purchasing power to be able to get into whatever place right now it's a it's flip absolutely right? it mm-hmm. almost
2: feels like uh, i mean uh, i'm not a renter but my friends that are a renter and people that i know are renters it's like survival almost yeah. right mm-hmm. and it feels so cutthroat and they're super if they especially if they have to move they feel so stressed about it and it it sucks. Like it's. It sounds like a very scary situation. It's.
1: It's,
0: it's crazy. And, and
1: and like everything, it's, um, that kind of intense competition for scarce units doesn't impact everyone equally. So if yeah. you have young kids, you know, there's, um, uh, or you're a single mom, or, um, there's various ways that people get profiled in those settings where there's 30 people lined up for a unit that make it harder to get even people with like pets
0: (laughs) oh you're talking to a dog owner here and like finding and this is now the
1: rest of the conversation is about pets
0: Pets, i love dogs and this is you know one of the reasons i love brandon yan cuz he was such an advocate for renters with pets and, and and this conversation around you know um pet owners and it the the vacancy rate for the average renter like, is 1% the vacancy rate for pet owners is like 0.3 yeah right crazy. so it's it's even a, the worst market to try and get into um
2: there is just one point that i want to bring up um because we have we do have to move on to some climate justice as well but uh you know, one thing that I find very captivating with the One City platform and the philosophy is um this focus on marginalized uh people. Because when we think about something like the housing crisis, this didn't happen overnight, right? And it started affecting sort of the most marginalized first in terms of uh homeless or uh you know, home instability uh, those people first and then started creeping up as as Salem you were you were alluding to and uh, you know when we are talking about this idea of inclusivity i like this idea that you do have to focus at 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 that end of the spectrum first mm-hmm. because that often gives you the sign of where things are headed mm-hmm. and if there was more focus perhaps on that end of the spectrum i almost feel like we wouldn't have got ourselves in the situation if there were more if there was more concern about social housing and in non-market housing prior to you know stopping all that construction we'd be in a way better place than we are today
1: yeah exactly and i think um uh, what we talked about earlier uh, that y- you know there's some segments of the population who realized we had a housing crisis Way when before. even a family of two doctors couldn't find a place <laughs> yeah. in Vancouver. right <laughs> yeah. that's when it um yeah gets called a crisis I, I mean similar to some of the conversation about the school tax that we had at council there were folks who were like this school tax issue is created is divisive and it's creating divides in the city well like those divides have been in place for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and this might be what brought it onto your radar. But inequality is um, is deep and getting deeper in Vancouver. And most people have been feeling that for a while.
2: Yeah. L- let's talk about something that that also creates inequality or highlights, uh, doesn't create inequality, sorry. It highlights certain inequalities <laughs> in our society and, in, and on our planet. And it's climate justice. Okay. Um, Christine, when you were on the podcast last, you brought up this idea of pursuing something similar to the climate liability lawsuits that we've seen mm-hmm. against fossil fuel companies um, by U.S. city governments and U.S. state governments. And uh, you know, listen, I love you, but I was a little skeptical when I heard that. <laughs> and then, you know, on the front page of the Vancouver Sun in December, this conversation spurred by you is is now being had. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I get the impression that you, you certainly were not messing around when you were brought up that idea. Um, and now we have this motion that, that a climate emergency has mm-hmm. been passed. And I feel like it really has been passed through this intersectional lens as well. Can you explain to me what, first of all, what does this motion mean and, uh, and how maybe you're approaching it differently than either past councils or other governments have approached it?
1: Sure. So uh, the motion that passed this week um, called for three key things. Um, Mm -hmm. The first was that the city of Vancouver acknowledged the scale of the climate crisis uh, and the urgency of it by declaring it, by naming it for the emergency that it is. Mm -hmm. It's it's been an emergency for a while, um, recognizing that urgency. The second piece was to ramp up our Targets and action plans to meet the scale that the science tells us is necessary, um, and Vancouver has a, a impressive track record uh, on climate action. Mm-hmm. It's been recognized globally as a leader on this stuff. So, i um, I'm I'm not the first person to bring this to the table, but I am saying. Um, we know that we haven't been meeting the targets to the degree that we need to. So we need to speed uh, that up and, and commit more heavily to it. Um, and then the third piece of it was to bring a stronger equity lens right. to um, the way that we're shaping those plans and the way that we're tackling climate change. Um, and
2: Because similar to like a housing crisis, uh, climate change would affect more marginalized groups. First, yeah, before, and we saw that
1: groups. we saw that in Vancouver with uh, smoke from the wildfires this mm-hmm. summer, um, and we see it with heat waves all over. Uh, that um, seniors, people with chronic health challenges, mm-hmm. uh, and and people with low incomes are being impacted um, because they don't have the you know the means in various ways to. Uh, to escape those impacts um, mm-hmm. as effectively. And that's just urban. I mean, there's there's whole conversations as well about impacts uh, of communities that have a closer relationship to the, the land um, and how that's shifting uh, and impacting communities. Um, but in the context in Vancouver, we see it in really real and tangible ways. And so we need to keep that um, in mind. Yeah. Uh, and so I think... Um, one of my favorite examples of how uh, we tackle climate change boldly with a with a strong um eye at inequality is in public transit. You know, so mm. and I will preface this um by saying, uh, my family just got an electric car. I saw so, that on were social We're so media. excited yeah. and, um like and went deep nerd on it quickly, you know, like <laughs> people who are into CrossFit and vegans. It's yeah. like all we wanna talk about um and uh electric cars aren't the solution to this crisis um mm-hmm. in part because most people can't afford them i mean we didn't get a tesla we got a, the people's electric car but still <laughs> um still pretty nice yeah it you know still it's out of it's uh, a nissan leaf it's a leaf yeah, yeah yeah uh it's out of um it's not affordable for most people but sure, also yeah. we don't uh, i don't think we a livable sustainable future city has everyone in separate cars anyway the 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 better solution i think we should electrify you know everything as some people say and um mm-hmm. transit but but public transportation is um uh, is such a key solution in reducing fossil fuel consumption um and uh and creating transportation that works for everyone yeah and so the um the motion that followed mine uh, this week was from the All on Board campaign, which is calling for free public transit for kids and youth up to 18 yeah. and a sliding scale for low-income people. And I think that's a, a great example of how we get at these crises together. Um, and uh, and I'm a big fan of that campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, l- but land use is another key part of it and as, and deeply connected to transportation. So creating housing close to where people work and building complete communities in that way is another key piece of tackling the climate crisis and inequality together. So those are, you know, people, I've been doing a lot of media on this, and everyone wants concrete examples. Um, uh, Vancouver's council will hear back from staff within 90 days with some uh, ramped up plan and recommendations for how we get there, but those are a couple examples of um, how we really take this crisis seriously and get to the level we need to, which is like 3% emission reductions per year. We've been doing about 1%, and that was considered leadership um, and and impressive and deserves credit, but we need to do even more than that. So yeah. that's but, some of the work ahead.
0: And there's an interesting thing. One of my favorite parts of the uh, International Climate Report, when they came out with their their report around um, you know where we're at in the, the six or eight years that we have to really do something about this mm-hmm. is this, co- this this quote that they included in the report, which is that every action matters, every choice matters, every decision matters when it comes to preventing uh, the catastrophe that we're facing. Yeah. And, and and when we talk about marginalized communities, I think about the example of, um, you know, there was deaths due to the heat strokes or heat waves in Quebec um, last year. And what happens when our climate is so unstable and we're getting to such extremes, cold or heat, and we have things like thirty-eight percent, or whatever it is—you know—it's a huge amount of homeless people that are Indigenous people, mm-hmm. and and we're actually putting people at risk of their lives because the climate has gone away, and now there's going to be light, uh, safety risks to people, like to homeless people living in the yeah. street, which, ha- mm-hmm. which happen to be majority um, people of color and majority Indigenous people, and so you know these types of actions they are going to impact marginalized communities differently and, and more. And and then when we talk about the actions we take, so transportation in British Columbia takes up almost over a third of the emissions um, that British Columbia is putting out. Sure. And so when we talk about reducing emissions, a third of it is coming from transportation, and that is uh, individual like vehicles um, and other types of transportation. And so when we talk about uh, transit, it becomes a huge player in changing that. And then you have other things like the land use stuff. We're we're facing it. We're seeing it. This whole conversation that we've had in our country in the last few years around refugees mm-hmm. is it, it can be traced back to climate change. Yeah. And then there's a lot of the stuff around what happened in Syria around the, the food, um,
2: the famine, the food,
0: the, the famine, famine issues and things like that. And the droughts, which created a political instability, which then created, you know, this, this battle that happened in Syria, which then forced people to flee, mm-hmm. which creates the refugee crisis. And, you know, Canada took in a lot. If you think about it in, you know, comparison to say some countries, but also took in very little compared to what a lot of European countries are taking in. Sure. We had a big conversation, you know, and different uh, forces are against it and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes back to it, we're looking at a future where um, many parts of the world, many marginalized um, part, uh, people, people of color around the world are gonna be facing instability as a result of climate change. Mm-hmm. And there's gonna be millions of more climate refugees. And the question that we have to face as a country and as a city is, what kind of place are we gonna be with the amount of wealth that we have? to take in people. Canada has been a very welcoming place for refugees recently and for a long time. That is a part of, I think, the generosity of this country. But when it gets down into the brass tacks of it, is are we gonna be a city that welcomes these people, say, yes, your country, and and because of climate, there's a lot of instability and we can be a country that's a leader in welcoming those people to support them and and bringing them here Mm -hmm. and adding to the fabric. That's the history of Canada with a lot of immigrants community coming here in the first place. They came here because it was a place that they could come to. So when it comes down to it though, and we're trying to build housing, you know, in some of the the richer neighborhoods and there's people opposing it because it's rental or it's social housing or it's nonprofit housing, or it's it's lower (laughs) income housing. we have to think about what type of vision do we have for the city and what types of forces are going to control the types of community we build now and in the future i would love for vancouver to be a place that is welcoming um, of everybody and building neighborhoods for everybody and that needs to be the people living here now it needs to be the people that are coming it needs to be the young people that aren't born yet Um, but it comes down to all these little decisions and policy choices uh, especially around housing especially around community building especially around land use Uh, around taxation and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that's, when you talk about climate change, I'm so grateful that we're thinking about it through this intersectional lens and through this lens of, of taking care of marginalized communities, mm-hmm. um, because it's really important uh, and is needed. Uh, and it's part of what we're gonna do to live the values that we think we, live, we will wanna be.
2: So, so I wanna touch on one last thing before mm-hmm. we wrap up. We are, we're a little crunch for time, mm-hmm. but I think it's important. When we're talking about building, uh, welcoming neighborhoods, um, One aspect that is often forgotten is is this idea of accessibility for people Mm -hmm. who have disabilities. Um, There was a story in the local news recently that highlighted how, based on the current pace of fixing Vancouver's curbs uh, so they can be accessible for people with wheelchairs, it would take like 320 years to finish them. Um, I want to give credit where it's due. Uh, Vancouver freelance writer uh, Gabrielle Peters has put Mm -hmm. a lot of unpaid research and work to bring this problem to light. Um, We've talked a lot about, obviously, inclusivity and and building a welcoming city. Um, But I want to know, you know, what are we doing, one, to address fixing Vancouver's curbs and what are we doing to ensure that we're reaching out to people like Ms. Peters, um, who are dedicating so much time and energy towards making that type of city that, that you two are talking about?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question and it's a key um, piece of, of this idea of who um, who belongs in the city and how are we uh, building the city in such a way that um, it makes clear uh, who is welcome here and, and that everyone is welcome here. Um, mm-hmm. So the city has been trying to increase the speed of which it's uh, rebuilding curb cuts um, and we should keep accelerating that. Uh, I know New Westminster, um, who, you know, as a city is uh, doing all kinds of amazing things, um, was saying that they, they, I think I'm remembering correctly, they... Fixed all their curb cut. They, they really addressed, yeah, they just did it because it mattered. Wow. Um, I mean, they're smaller. No, um, but still. And I have all, they new, also don't have the same budget. Newest envy uh, <laughs> on all kinds of things. Um, and they taunt us on Twitter sometimes about these <laughs> sorts of things. And um, it's impressive. And it, uh, so um, it is about priorities. Uh, and I think we should continue to speed that up. Um, I'm hopeful about what's coming out of this accessible city plan Mm -hmm. um and uh like anything it can't be just another side project that we work on you know it's not just curb cuts the straw ban um that the city implemented was a key uh challenge on that and uh, and Mm -hmm. an example where um the sort of greening piece forgot to think about this bigger picture of equity and uh and who's included and who Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, harmed in these kinds of decisions, so I think the straw ban needs to be reconsidered. Sure. Um, in light of that, um, so it's a. It's another lens that we need to be looking at all of the work that we're doing under, rather than having it be, a side project. Um, and yeah. I think that's the, um, one of the. Many valuable things that I've learned, um, from, Gabrielle Peters and. Uh, in particular, um, is these very helpful reminders about uh, asking how uh, people with disabilities are being impacted mm-hmm. and considered at the very beginning um, of shaping plans. and And
2: just really quickly, how do you ensure that these voices continue to be pulled into the process?
1: I think it needs to be at every level, which is why you know, when we talked earlier about advisory committees, um, they can't just be a a last. Touch point for a already shaped plan that gets stamped off by them. And um, we mm-hmm. need to make sure that we're hearing this diversity of voices at the beginning. Um, and it's why it matters that we work to elect a broad diversity of people in our elections, because um, then we have those ideas and experiences at the table uh, right from the very beginning, and we're not having to. Um, seek out and ask them as an afterthought later. So, yeah, I think um that's what ties all of these challenges together is that it uh, it brings us better policy and it creates a more inclusive, a truly more inclusive city.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it goes to I think this is a simple, you know, my own understanding around privilege and intersectionality and around the work of, of applying that lens to the work that we do because, you know, I know what it feels like to be discriminated against, or to be marginalized, or to be um, to to feel that within the structure of power and the structure of policies. And I know what it feels like to experience that as an Indigenous person. But what I also need to recognize is that there's also a lot of power and privilege that I have as a man, and the way that I need to make sure I'm staying on top of that privilege. When we're talking about things like gender equity
2: absolutely and, yeah. and then so
0: and then what i what i have to do to think about that is think about what experiences i've had when i've tried to communicate or tried to ask for or tried to chain challenge the system to be more equitable to indigenous issues to think about what it's like for me to have to put on my cap of being back in that chair but now as the person who actually has the power. right? And so right. I use it as a lens. Mm. I use it as like my metaphor that I use when I talk about this is I walk into the world always with the lens of being an indigenous person because that's how the world sees me and that's how the world has been built. Hmm. I, I interact with systems and institutions based off of that and I can't escape it. I can't take that lens off. Yeah. I can't not be indigenous with the way the system in the world in Canada has been built. Um, But the lens of being a man with privilege to notice things like misogyny and sexism um, and patriarchy, that's actually something that I have to like, it actually takes work for me to take on, to pick up the glasses and put that lens on and be aware of it. Absolutely. Because I can walk into a meeting, I can walk into a gathering, I can be at the decision making table and completely forget that there are certain people in this room who are being marginalized or disadvantaged because of the structural problems in our society. I have Mm -hmm. to remember, oh yeah, there's a lot of men talking right now. (laughs) Oh yeah, I'm interrupting people. Like I'm interrupting the women right now. Oh yeah, I just stole that woman's idea. She said something. I said the idea and everybody clapped when I did it, (laughs) right? So I have to actually have to pay attention to that. I have to think about that. And so, you know, Christine can talk about the, the you know, the world that she's had to live as a fema- as a woman politician and, 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 and being successful and the challenges she faces on that. Mm-hmm. I, I can think about it being Indigenous. But both of us have to put on that lens when we come to mm-hmm. disability to mm-hmm. think about, oh, yeah, we have to remember to put that lens on. Yeah. And so the best thing you can do is to have people in the room who actually have that lived experience and have that mm-hmm. expertise and know that so that their voices are included and that they're actually at the decision-making pa- table. Um but it's also important for all of us, to, that those of us with the privilege, to remember to to put those lenses on, to be educated, to reach out, to to, to know, um, so that we are being really good allies on this, that we're being really understanding, and that we are going to support those voices when it comes down to it. Uh, and I think Christine's been doing a great job on this, and there's other city council members and other people in government that are. But it, it's, just, it's a part of the work we have to do around sure. recognizing our privilege. And
2: I think that's a beautiful... Uh Note to end on. To be honest, Mm -hmm. before we go, uh, how do people stay in touch with you and the work you're doing? Uh, Social media handles. We're all all over the internet. Um,
1: (laughs) uh, I'm on Twitter at Christine E Boyle uh, and on Facebook uh, as my uh, candidate. My my uh, council page is Christine Boyle, One City, Vancouver. And one city um, is uh, memeing it up all. So many good memes. So many memes uh, that we throw (laughs) at the internet. The cool party. (laughs) um, uh, At one city, Van, and one city, Vancouver, on all the things. Cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Call Selem. K H E L S I L E M. Uh, You can find me on Twitter. I am often tweeting about various irreverent things sometimes, like dogs and and Marvel movies. But
2: lots of great insights as well. I love following you. Um, Both of you, thank you so much for being here. This is a lot of fun, very enlightening. Uh, I love the mindset and the philosophy that both of you bring to your elected positions. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. And you know what? We got to do part three at some point. Yeah, we'll bring absolutely. a third person in, and yeah, we'll, we'll just this keep out. building. <laughs>
1: Thanks well, for having us.
2: Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Vancouver City Councilor Christine Boyle and Squamish Nation Councilor and Spokesperson Hoselam. They are Christine and Hoselam, <laughs> uh, and I'm Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.